at home here in, in Boulder with my family. Um, we were able to, to do a lot of fun things, enjoy the mountains, do some hiking, do some running, um, even do some fishing. My, my wife took me on a fly fishing trip. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 66 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who is talking off-season activities. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and a very quick review to get this week underway. Awesome five stars from G Nash from Japan. Been meaning to write this for a while, but have to say the podcast is awesome. Just the energy you bring to the topics and tips and bits have pushed me to train harder and smarter. Always looking forward to the next one. Thanks. Thank you very much, G Jash. I really appreciate that you took the time out to do that. And I'm really happy that you're getting a lot from the show because that means a lot to me as well. But if you do love the show, I would love an iTunes review. Five stars, rock the Casbah. Thank you very, very much. Now, I'm moving into the news section now, but I'm trying to expand it a little, and it's going to cover news and articles, things that I found interesting throughout my week, and hopefully I can put a link up and point you in that direction if you want to read a little bit more as well. And the first one that came to light was the Endurance Sportswire podcast. It's a brand new podcast, and it's not necessarily performance-based. I believe it's going to cover very interesting topics, talking to industry leaders in the cycling genre. They will branch out into other sports, but for now, their first episode is all about event sponsors, how to get them, how to keep them, and it is a really good interview and a really good insight into sponsors on a large level if you're looking at doing some type of event and you do need sponsorship, so definitely check that out. The other thing I came across this week is a blog by an Australian exercise physiologist and he has been working with the Australian track team for a while. He doesn't currently work for them but he's got lots of great information. It has been around for a little while but I do find the information interesting because each post breaks down some scientific study and it's usually something that's a little left of center which really is interesting to me. So the example which I will link to in the show notes is acupuncture and cycling where he goes through a study that was actually done with cyclists and acupuncture to figure out whether it's going to help athletes improve or not. I'll let you read the article to find out whether it is helpful or not. But outside of that, the Australian trip is just about to get underway. I'm very close to touching down in Australia and I have had contact from some cyclists in Sydney and in Melbourne. So it is more than likely that there will be at least a small get together in both of those cities. And if you are interested, hit me up on Twitter at SemiProCycling and we can discuss the details. And I'll know those details a little closer to the date and let everybody know. Our physiology as humans is, is highly adaptable. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be here talking. I'm not sure if you recognize the voice, but that's Chris Harnish. He's the host of the ESP podcast. He's also an ex-cyclist, coach, exercise physiologist, and assistant professor at Virginia Commonwealth University.
I had a chance to get Chris on the phone to have a talk about a burning question of mine, the idea of training with intensity year-round. It's a move away from the well-accepted linear periodization thinking, but you will find that it's not too far removed from that in some ways. But I started off by asking about a new type of base, base fitness. I'm pretty excited to have you here because what you actually talk about in your training podcast is a lot of areas of endurance that kind of fascinate me, but one area in particular for cycling and its application to cycling is exploring the idea of training with intensity year-round. And from what I understand of what I've listened to you is that this ability to do this really revolves on maintaining a minimum level of fitness all year-round. So there's less of a need to spend time building a base fitness every year and all the training that goes along with that what really are the benefits of doing this? Well, you know, I think a lot of the benefits stem from the fact that the way that we have traditionally designed our training programs and, and periodized our training programs is this idea that we, we spend lots of time kind of building up. We're always building up towards something in the future, and we do a lot of training, and we do a lot of racing, whether it be training races or peaking races. And so you get to the end of your season a lot of times and you're just so mentally drained and you're physically drained that, you you know, you just have to unwind. And so we still are in this habit. It's not quite as bad as it was in the in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s where people would literally put their bike away for three months and not touch it. But I still see a lot of cyclists who just take tons of time off and then they lose a lot of fitness. Now, for a professional cyclist, I think that this works okay. In some cases, it works fine. But when your life revolves around your sport and you have time to take time off and then you have pretty much a devoted life to build back up, that's okay. But for people who have a lot less time, and and I'm really one of these people now, I find that I can't lose all my fitness and then spend December, January, and February just trying to build back up just to get to the point where I can actually train again. So I really have taken to this idea of you know more frequent breaks throughout the season, but these are really short breaks. And even less than that, really building in more individual recovery days because we've gotten – kind of in this model where, you know, Monday has to be a day off and then Tuesday has to be something else and then Wednesday uh, is something else and then we have this rigid schedule and and for many people, maybe Monday has to be a recovery ride and Tuesday has to be a day off and then maybe Wednesday you hit your training again and that doesn't always fall within our normal seven-day work week, which is what a lot of us like. So if you spend a little less time uh, losing fitness, and and that could be even after a long season, you take maybe a week off. Just don't don't do anything for a week. Uh, you know, walk to work or commute, but then build back in other activities and just stay active. And if you haven't done resistance training in a long time, then during that that kind of break in period, use that rather than taking a month off and then get into your resistance training and then spend a month trying to get into it. Just kind of slowly work those activities back in, but constantly add activity because the human body actually does not really respond well. And by well, I mean adapt well to inactivity a lot of bad things happen when you're you're sedentary for even a short period of time and we see this with a number of bed rest studies where it's you know you're in bed for 10 days and it 
pretty much obliterates your fitness level. So uh, if you take complete time off and you just work all the time, what you're going to do is you're going to find it's really difficult to get back going again. Now, this idea is nothing new, especially if you're the type of person that loves keeping fit and will find some way to stay active throughout the year. But the strength of what Chris is talking about is for cyclists with little time on their hands, especially as we get older, maintaining fitness rather than building fitness really is the best base to have. But what about those just starting out? Someone that's just starting out, though, will have to get to a certain level of fitness through a traditional style of base training or at least adaption to the style of pedaling or working out that the body needs to adapt to. Is that a fair comment to make? It is, but I think, again, we've created this dogma behind how physiology works versus the reality of the matter. Our physiology as humans is, is highly adaptable. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be here talking right now. Uh, there's no way that we would have survived all of the multitude of events that have occurred over human history, but we're super adaptable. We are probably the best athlete that the earth has ever seen. We can compete in numerous different environments. We can compete in extreme environments. So someone who's starting out, sure, you don't load them up with a lot of volume, but I think a lot of people are afraid to give somebody high-intensity training. If you're not a cardiac patient and you don't have some kind of disease or some kind of leg injury or some, something that's going to limit you, I say start with intensity as soon as possible, may, maybe within the first week or so. And if you look at a lot of the more recent training studies using high-intensity training, that's where we're starting now. We're starting with the really unfit populations, and then we move to the athletic populations. Whereas in the past, a lot of times we started with the athletes because we knew that they could handle it. But I think a lot of people are a lot more capable. Now, again, having said that base training period is important, but it's important to define what a base training period is. And, and it's really about trying to build yourself up to the point where you can do an appreciable amount of training. So in that respect, I think a little bit more intensity, maybe one really high intensity day a week, but the overall volume really builds up maybe more slowly. And I know on your podcast, you talked about that 10% rule. That rule is pretty good. But maybe starting out and do a 5% rule and have a little bit more high intensity because that's really where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. A key component here, which carries over from traditional periodization, is building volume. So it's not like the intensity is going to replace time on the bike in preparing your body to handle a larger workout, where this gradual buildup of volume is the part that's supposed to help with intensity later on in the season. So if we throw intensity into the mix from the start, how does the body cope? Chris doesn't believe this is necessary. In fact, he doesn't believe the body can work too hard. You know, to be quite honest with you, I don't think you can work too hard. I think you can work too much, and, and we do see that a lot. And I also think a lot of it depends on the sport you're in. Coming from a cycling background, I can say that I can still train a lot more on my bike than I can running. And a long running week for me, a really long running week would be about 40 miles. And people are astounded to hear that because they're like, well, I don't understand how you train so little. And I, I said, you, you don't understand. That's the longest week for me. I usually train maybe about 15 miles a week for running because my body can't handle that kind of 
abuse, you know, swimming is similar because, again, the shoulder's not made for really a lot of high-volume training if you're not used to it in particular. But cycling, I think the intensity you can do in cycling is really going to be dictated by your fatigue resistance. So if somebody was starting out, I probably wouldn't start them out with five-minute VO2 max repeats because chances are they're not going to make it the full five minutes. You could easily add in 30-second sprints. You could add in one minute on, two minute off repeats, those types of things. People can easily sustain those. And the really neat thing is that the fitness gains that you get come on pretty rapidly. And we've seen that in a number of studies over the last decade where very short, high intensity workouts yield pretty amazing effects on both VO2 max, but also on sustained time trial type performances. Okay, so why put your body through all of this hard work? Why not just go out and do an LSD ride? Other than time savings, there are definitely endurance benefits from working at high intensities. So what you're saying is that high intensity training actually does work on your endurance, that you don't have to be doing an endurance level of workout for your endurance to increase. Yes, and that's actually where, I, again, that dogma comes in where it's, well, we must do five-hour rides because we have five-hour races. And what we normally see is that you, you can only volume load so much. And, and uh, there's a great researcher from, uh, from Australia, Paul Arson, who's done a number of both review papers and research papers, and he studied rats, he studied untrained people, and he studied highly trained cyclists, okay? And what he's found is that, you know, if you're really highly trained, you can only volume load so much, meaning if you're training five hours a day, if you go to six or seven hours, you're not going to make really any more improvement in VO2 max or in lactate threshold or any of those traditional measures. What you need to do is you need to do high intensity. But if we look kind of you know, maybe closer to home, so to speak, and we look at less trained people and we take really short intervals. There was a, a really neat study um, that came out of Tim Noakes' lab back in 1999, and they used a bunch of different groups to compare different length interval sessions. And the two groups that really stood out in that study were the one group that did 30 seconds on, two minutes off, and the other group that did four minutes on, uh, and I think it was like four minutes off or something. So the traditional kind of VO2 max repeat. And what they found is that those two groups were the only two groups that actually improved their 40K time trial performance. And that was the first study that said to us, hey, wait a second, you can actually do sprint intervals and that's going to improve your endurance. And since then, there have been a number of studies that have actually looked at really low volume high-intensity sprinting, and they've compared time trial performance pre- and post-training, and there's no difference between that and the traditional 40- to 60-minute endurance training groups. Starting to put these together now, how much volume? For semi-pros, it's much about your life outside of cycling as it is your event itself, and it's definitely a tricky one to answer, but Chris makes some important points here. I think that it would be impossible for me to sit here and say, okay, you know, this guy's a pro cyclist and he needs to go out and just do short repeats and he's going to train 10 hours a week and, and I can pretty much guarantee he's not going to do very well at the pro level. But uh, you, you've really got to look at who the person is, how much training time they have. 
And if somebody's going to set their training volume, I think it's really going to depend on what their maximum training volume is. So if you have a five-hour race, but you know you got a family and you got stuff going on, you got work, and you can't get five hours in, well, you can't get five hours in. But I've generally found that you can turn a three-hour ride into a, a really good training session. And I knew somebody who used to train every year. He'd go to Europe and he'd do a series of races and all he had was three hours a day and he commuted in the work an hour and a half, commuted in an hour, one and a half hours and then he commuted home one and a half hours, that was three hours a day. And he didn't have any problems in the races that he was doing. So it is a little bit individual, but from a periodization standpoint, and this is how I've really set up a lot of the training programs that I've done over the past probably five years, is that your training's got to change. Okay, so you're, you're going to probably spend more of your time doing short, higher intensity training sessions. But there comes a time where it's really beneficial to get out there and try to do training sessions that are at least close to what you're going to do. So if you have a five-hour race and the most you can dedicate is four, okay, well, you know, you got four hours. Chances are if you can get through a hard four-hour training session, you can get through a five-hour race. So you want to look at really the person you're, you're dealing with, how much time they have. But honestly, if you're really serious about competing, you can usually carve out at least a few long days. And that might mean giving up a lot of training time during the week. But that's okay because if you train your or, – or if you plan your training accordingly, you can really uh, balance out your training so you do get some long – long volume sessions in there and you get a lot of the high intensity stuff and and, and really your top end is really what's going to help you survive the event at least for the first few hours. Really the main thing that's coming across is creativity or at least the willingness to try new things to mix it up a little bit especially when you have limited time. I asked Chris if it's possible to incorporate a couple of different workouts into one training ride. I definitely think it is. And I think that it certainly doesn't want to be all or none. It's kind of like I only do long distance. I only do intensity. But I see no reason not to add in different components into the training session. And a good example is uh, I remember a few years back I was talking to Max Testa. And um, he was training one of the, the U.S. sprinters. So one of the guys right now, one of the U.S. criterium teams. And Almost every single long-distance training ride that that guy did, he had sprints throughout that, that ride. Four or five sprints, it might be one an hour. And Max knew that the more endurance training you do, the more that's going to hurt your explosive power. And if you're trying to compete at a number of different events, but honestly your bread and butter is the sprint, you've got to add in a lot of sprint work because – that component's going to be lost in your fitness. So that's one really easy way. If you're doing a lot of endurance training, throw in a 20 or 30 second sprint every hour. It is going to, at the very least, preserve your explosive power. If you say, well, you know, I don't have any explosive power, it's all the more reason you got to do it. That, that being said, there's a couple other things that you can do. You can turn an endurance training session into a really quality interval training session by putting your high intensity stuff at the beginning. Now you're working on the quality, and then you continue on and you get your endurance. Well, the other way to do it is to say, okay, I want to 
not only improve my fatigue resistance, but based on a more recent podcast that you've done on, on cramping, one of the best ways to combat cramping is to actually train hard enough where you get to the point where you're going to cramp. And the only way to do that is to actually do some longer endurance rides and then really hammer yourself at the end. So you might be going out for a three-hour ride, a pretty hilly ride. You know, Let the hills dictate your intensity early on. And then the last hour, do uh, four times five-minute you know, repeats where you're maybe 90% of your VO2 max power output or maybe even shorten them, do three minutes on, three minutes off. You're still getting good quality. You know, a number of coaches will say, hey, you know, you don't have to go out and every session doesn't have to be a banner session. You don't have to put up the best watts. Sometimes a training session just needs to be a training session. And so if you put your endurance on the front end and then do the high intensity on the end, I have generally found that you fare more favorably in longer endurance events. And plus, there's that mental component. You're really starting to get into that, that point where I've been out here three hours, I'm tired, but now I've got to push myself. Well, when you're in a race, you're tired. You've got to push yourself because either you push yourself and you make the gap or you don't. Along with all this extra intensity work comes the danger of mental burnout. Intervals aren't easy. If they were, you'd be doing them on every ride. So I asked Chris about what we can do to avoid burnout. You know, I think uh, the first thing above all else is to shorten your training sessions. You know, sometimes if you're short on time or, or maybe just kind of mentally you're tired, you know, but you feel okay. And, and I tell you, I, I, have, I have a lot of days where I feel terrible when I get home from work. I just, I don't want to do anything. And then I just go out, you know, and maybe put my sneakers on or, you know, I head out on my bike and I start to feel better. And so I throw in, you know, maybe two or three repeats. I see how I feel. If I feel okay and my numbers are okay, but I'm still kind of just, you know, not into the workout, then I, I just cut it short. What I've generally found is that if you really play the head game on yourself where you're not necessarily trying to make yourself feel guilty, but you play on the fact that, oh yeah, you know, I cut that session short the other day and I really needed to do more, but I wasn't really into it. Well, you're going to be more motivated the next time you go out. But honestly, if you don't have a lot of time to train, I'm not sure why people really get burnt out other than the fact that maybe their life is pretty busy and, uh, you know, you're frustrated and and I, I think we've all been there where it's like, you know, I really want to get out and train more. I feel like I should be doing more, but then you're like, yeah, I'm not a full-time athlete still or maybe ever. So, you know, that's kind of secondary. The other thing you can do is to really find kind of your happy place in the workout where you just need to be glad that you're actually doing the training session. Again, sometimes just going through the motions is an important part because we all want to make progress in every single training session. We all want to make PRs and our time trials. Uh, but the fact is we don't. I mean, that's just impossible. And not, not every training session needs to be the best, but at least you're out there and you're doing something and you're maintaining. And that's really going to be the most important thing because at the very least, it, as long as you're not going backwards, you really are going forwards. You know, as soon as you get hurt or you get sick or you just don't want to train for a month, uh, then you're really going to lose fitness. All right. So are you convinced yet? Interested in giving it a go? Chris recommends two types of key workouts, 30-second Wingate Sprint 
and a two and a half minute VO2 max effort, but I'll let him explain it further. For the last, I think, 10 to 20 years, Training's gotten so complicated, and we have really developed a lot of different training zones. We, we have tons of different training zones, and I never want to equate anything to a perfect workout because I, I remember when I was coming into the sport back in the late 80s and 90s, lactate threshold training was everything. It was If you stayed at your lactate threshold, all sorts of wonderful things happened, and you never overtrained, and, and you got all of these benefits, but... The fact is that threshold training model never really panned out, and it's just one intensity, and it's, it's not that you shouldn't go out there and train at threshold. You should really train at all intensities, but the two workouts that I found to be probably the most effective and uh, at least are backed up by you know, the most research, and again, the research is both in, in untrained people and in really highly trained people. The first one is the 30-second Wingate Sprint. And so we normally do a wind gate test on a bike ergometer, but there's a really easy way that a cyclist can do one. You go out, you put it in a moderately hard gear, and you find a really steep hill. And you, you sprint as hard as you possibly can. And what you're going to do is you're going to get to the top, and you're, you're going to be dragging. You know, you sprint for 30 seconds, you recover for about four minutes, and you do that maybe four times the first session. I mean, if you're just starting out training – three or four times and you're going to be pretty thrashed. That is a great workout. It works on explosive power, high-end training power, motor unit recruitment. You want to tap into those type 2 fast twitch fibers and that training is going to do it, but it's also going to enhance endurance performance and that's been shown in, in a number of studies. But it's a good short workout and if you're short on time, you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck from that workout. The other workout is a uh, one that was brought to me from a friend of mine, and I, I remember we were talking about this on my podcast, probably one of the first podcast discussions I had, and it's two-and-a-half-minute interval. And a lot of people say, well, you know, why two-and-a-half? Why not three? And, and I say, well, you, you can do three. But this comes from the work of Paul Larson again, and he's looked at both running and cycling. And what he found is that if you take a, a certain percentage of your VO2 max time – which is the you know, power output that you can sustain at VO2 max. And, and for trained people, that usually is like five or six minutes. Well, you, you take a certain percentage of that, and it, it works out to be about two and a half minutes. And you, you work on that area alone, and that is probably going to be the most beneficial overall. So if you had to pick one interval to kind of improve your threshold and your max power, that would be the workout. In practice, you, you're going to vary it a little bit more. I mean, sometimes I might say do three minutes, sometimes two and a half, maybe two minutes. But you stay within that range. And then the last thing that I strongly recommend that people try is actually comboing your repeats. Okay, so I might go out and do four or five times two and a half minute intervals. I recover for four minutes. I do that part of the workout. And then on the way home, I have a really steep hill nearby. And then I go to that same hill all the time and I do maybe two or three short 30-second sprints. And then I go home. And I finish that workout and I'm pretty trashed. I might actually flip it though and I might do maybe six times 30 seconds and I might throw in two, two of those two-and-a-half-minute uh, repeats. And then I kind of get that VO2 max side of it. And really what it comes down to is that you're trying to maximize your motor unit recruitment 
okay, again, those type 2 muscle fibers, and you're trying to maximize the amount of ATP that your mitochondria have to produce. And that's really what it comes down to. You want to produce more mitochondria, and you want to be able to recruit fibers. And so if you kind of combo those two workouts, those I think are, are going to be keys. If you have more time, you can certainly branch out. And I do other intervals, but I tell you, if you looked at probably 80% of my training program and I'd say at least half of the training programs that I do for, for most other people, there's some combination of those two intervals in there. And what about less than 30 seconds? Yeah, I mean, you you can. Here it gets a little bit more complicated because there seems to be a, a fine line between kind of the 20 to 30 second range. Certainly, you could do a maximal 20 second sprint and you're going to rest for a long period of time. One of the things that I'm doing in my research right now is I'm looking at a comparison between those Wingate sprints and the the Tabata protocol. And, you know, I think by now most people have heard of the Tabata protocol. A lot's been made of it. I will say that Tabata only published two studies. And uh, so it's, it's hard to draw a lot of conclusions. His results were impressive, but they've never actually been validated by somebody else. But his idea was maximal sprints, minimal recovery. So you do kind of a work to rest ratio of two to one where you're sprinting for 20 seconds and you're recovering for 10 seconds. And you usually get a a cardiovascular stress on the system. Whether it's more effective, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. But I will say this, if you're feeling really fatigued from training, you can definitely still do sprint workouts and really not exacerbate your fatigue. And there has been a few physicians that are familiar with overtraining. The way they introduce training to somebody who's been severely overtrained is to say, okay, well, we're going to get you started and we're just going to throw in maybe these eight to 10 second sprints and kind of work from there because they know if you do too much endurance work, you're going to get too fatigued. But I definitely think there's some merit, but the shorter you go, I think that's going to be more beneficial to really top end speed why a lot of sprint workouts have have really centered on that 15 to 20 second range. Where is the best place for people to get a hold of you if they want to find out more? Yeah, they can actually head on over to www.espanswers.com. That's all one word, espanswers.com. And they can uh, drop me an email at esppodcast.com com, and I'm always happy to answer questions. I have a Facebook page too. It's, if you're on Facebook, you can search it there. But I'm always happy to respond to emails directly. And if I can, I, you know, I put them up on the show. But certainly they can touch base with me that way. If you do want to dig into this stuff a little further, it's actually quite difficult. Maybe that's why not many people are talking about it, but I can highly recommend Chris's podcast, the ESP podcast. It's a great resource of new information as well as scientifically backed studies. I think it's important to understand why he started the podcast, especially in the age of magazines and websites peddling questionable information about training, but I'll leave Chris to have the final words. You know, really, I think it is important for everybody to be as educated as possible. And that was really the the major driving force for me starting a podcast was that there's a lot of uh, stuff written on websites and it, you know, some of it contradicts itself. A lot of it's outdated. And I always tell people, you know, you don't, you don't have to believe anything, everything that I say, but be skeptical 
whenever somebody's saying that you know something is the best way and and i'm always quick to qualify like the way that i suggest training i I don't say it's the best way it's an effective way but whenever somebody is absolutely positive that it is going to be the best way for you it probably isn't and there really are probably four or five good ways to train for any one person your training outcomes might be a little bit different but you're you're probably going to get to the same general location and there are a lot of great coaches out there the coaches that i like the most are the ones that really don't bullshit it's you, you know you've got to do this and and um you know this is the reason why and they can actually explain it with science So the tech hacks and products section, I'm going to talk about an alloy computer mount. It doesn't sound exciting. And in the age of the Barfly and all of its clones that have propped up afterwards, this is just another one of those. But it's taken to a level that is a little bit sexier. I don't know if you know this brand, Far and Near. They are a Taiwanese brand, and they are definitely one of the sexier computer mounts on the market. It has this nice adjustable slider, plenty of colors. I'm a little bit partial to the plastic over the alloy, but this alloy seems to look pretty good and can give you that nice little bit of bling. I don't believe I said that word, but that's what it's going to do. So check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes. I definitely think front-mounted computers are the way to go. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Tom Danielson, the 2013 Tour of Utah winner. The dude is not resting this off-season. He is on the off-season hustle. He has cycling camps booked in till the end of the year. He has his core workout book, which I'm sure he's getting around promoting. It's a very nice tradition from a shady past, but definitely good luck with the business ventures, Tom. And that's it for me this week. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into. 